Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. And down the line, we have Laura Noonan, investment banking correspondent, and Sujit Indap, our Lex columnist. Today, we'll be looking at allied Irish banks as the Irish government prepares to reprivatise the bank. Secondly, a look at HSBC as it struggles to move a thousand jobs from its London headquarters to Birmingham. And finally, M&A fees. Do big banks or boutiques make the real money? First, though, to Allied Irish Banks. And Laura joins me down the line, actually, from Madrid. But to talk about the Irish banking situation, this is a bit of a moment, Laura. This is a bank that was totally nationalised seven years ago. I think it was a €21 billion bailout. And the government now is preparing to IPO a quarter of the bank. Is that right? Yes. So AIB has certainly come a long way since it was nationalised in 2010. This was the biggest bailout of any of the surviving Irish banks. Anglo-Irish Bank, of course, took more, but Anglo-Irish Bank died. So AIB was the biggest casualty of what's left in the Irish banking sector. The bailout of its bank helped push the Irish sovereign to an overall bailout from the EU and the International Monetary Fund. So to be able to go now and actually try to sell some of the bank onto private investors is a very big deal for the country and a very big deal for the bank itself. And the bank is in reasonable health. It's been profitable for a few years now. Nevertheless, the valuation that people seem to be talking about is, what, about half of what it was nationalised at? Yes, people say it's worth between 12 to 13 billion. It was nationalised at a cost of 20.8 billion. The Irish government claims it's already gotten back 6.8 billion from AIB. They've calculated that based on various fees, levies, that the bank has paid over the years because the Irish government introduced a government guarantee fee during the crisis and AIB paid a lot in that. They also redeemed some other instruments. So the government argues it's already gotten back 6.8. So in order to actually break even, they need the valuation to come out somewhere around 14. Now, they insist that they're not actually trying to break even on this bank in particular. It's more about the overall rescue of the Irish banks, which are actually surviving. They invest in this bank, also permanent TSB and also Bank of Ireland. So they view the investment in the banking sector as a collective thing, whereas in the UK case, I mean, there was a lot of attention around whether the UK Treasury broke even on Lloyd, on RBS in particular. The Irish view the numbers differently. A lot of this money was invested to cover losses which had actually already been made. So the bank had lent poorly. They lent a lot on property development, which proved to be fairly speculative. There was also a crash in the residential housing market, so there was a lot of defaults on home loans. So a lot of the money was invested to fill a hole, which was actually already there. So in that sense, it's not entirely realistic to expect all of that money to actually be recouped. The bank is in pretty good shape these days. I mean, they've already taken a lot of provisions on the loans, which they do have now. The Irish economy is now one of the fastest growing within the EU, so there's a decent outlook there. So I think 
they should get a decent valuation for it. People expect it to trade in line with its peers. But the idea of Ireland getting back everything it put in seems pretty unlikely to me at this stage. I suppose the big question is, what is investor appetite going to be like? Investor appetite so far, if we believe what we're told by people who were involved in the deal, looks pretty healthy. I mean, this is your only real opportunity to have a pure play on the Irish economic recovery as an equity investor. The Bank of Ireland is obviously out there too, but some 40% of its assets are actually in the UK. So if you believe in the Irish economic story and you believe that the economy is going to continue to grow, banks tend to be a fairly pure play on that. And AIB is the only Irish bank of scale which is actually offering investors the opportunity to actually participate in that. There's also good appetite for Eurozone banks overall, even though we do still have the downward pressure from interest rates, which obviously aren't moving in the same direction as the US yet. And there are still some headwinds in terms of the overall Eurozone economy, but I don't talk to anyone who doubts that they will get this thing done. It's just a question of the price. Just a question of the price, as you say. Laura, thanks very much for joining us. Emma, let's move on to our second topic, HSBC. You've recently been up to Birmingham to see how the bank is faring in setting up its UK ring fence bank, which is going to be headquartered in Birmingham. And as part of that, it's trying to move a thousand rolls from London to Birmingham. It's not finding it that easy. It's not. The bank confirmed that it's secured about 500 or so of the 1,040 rolls that it's planning on moving from London to Birmingham, ideally by the end of this year. Although head of the UK bank PLC, Antonio Samoas, said that this isn't a hard and fast deadline and he's able to accept some slippage there. But ultimately, the bank has been attempting to woo staff from London to shift their lives and their jobs to Birmingham by incentivising them with packages, which includes help finding local schools for their children, for example, relocation packages in terms of housing, and also cash incentives as well. But the bank has struggled to fill certain roles in specialist areas, such as marketing, communication, audits to an extent saying that a lot of these specialist positions are actually largely based in London. So it's been tough to bring a sort of specialist community up to Birmingham, if you will. What about hiring then from locals in the Birmingham area? Because obviously it is to an extent a banking centre already. Deutsche Bank has got a big operation there. I think TSB had roots in the area some time ago. So if they can't move existing HSBC staff, I guess they will have to recruit locally. I think part of the excitement in the first instance was that HSBC was headquartering in Birmingham, that therefore it could provide some more local jobs in that sense. But as you say, part of the attraction for the bank is that there are other financial services companies up there. So we also saw that KPMG is going to be moving some of its London staff up to Birmingham and that, as you say, Deutsche Bank is there. So there could be another pool of talent from which HSBC can draw and arguably from which Deutsche Bank can draw in Birmingham if they're looking to recruit. So as more financial services companies move up there, then I guess it does make it more attractive and enable the bank to hire locally. Well, we'll see HSBC is, I suppose, the most dramatic in terms of its plans for a ring fence bank. The other banks tend to be just spinning them off in their local headquarters in London. But we'll monitor that effort as it goes on. Thanks for that, Emma. Let's move to our third topic, which is a look at the M&A market and the fees that banks and boutique advisors generate. And we're joined now by Suji Indap, our Lex columnist in New York, who has done some thorough research on the topic. 
Sujit, thanks for joining us. So tell us what are the big findings from this massive data exercise you engaged in, basically looking at M&A fees and who are the biggest winners. Are we talking big bulge bracket banks or boutiques? Uh, well, it's a little bit of both, actually. And then the genesis of this project was the idea to separate deal fees from league tables, which, uh, as we've written many times about before, can be manipulated and aren't always that revealing. And to be clear, league tables are traditionally generated by ranking advisors on the basis of the deal size that they work on. So if you advise on a big deal, regardless of the fees you charge for it, you'll get credit and it can be distorting. That's right. So you can have multiple banks on a transaction and they all get equal credit, even though some firms had a more meaningful role. And really what fee data does is cut through that. So the firm with the biggest role is going to have the biggest fee. So the fee data really can tell you who really is strong in the market. So what's interesting is that this analysis confirmed a lot of previous notions. So Goldman was way ahead in the fee rankings I've looked at. And it was three years of data between 2014 and 2016. They earned almost $2 billion in U.S. sell-side fees. That was well ahead of Morgan Stanley, who's the traditional number two and arch rival to Goldman. They finished with $1.3 billion. But maybe the most interesting result was who else was in the top ranking. So number four was a small firm called Centerview, which is just 10 years old. It has a couple of bankers who started the firm from large firms, and they're private. So there's a sense that they're doing very well from league tables. But in fact, if you look at the fee rankings, it tells you just how prominent they've become. They earned almost $800 million in those three years, which placed them number four. So they were ahead of every firm except for... Goldman, Morgan, and J.P. Morgan. So that was a fascinating result. And then just behind Centerview was Catalyst, which is the West Coast firm founded by the legendary tech banker Frank Quattrone. They specialize in selling kind of $1 to $5 billion tech companies, and they earned almost $600 million. And what was most interesting about Centerview and Catalyst was that not only were they on a lot of deals, but their rates were among the highest, if not the highest, in the sample. So not only are they getting hired, but they're able to tell CEOs and boards, you know what, you got to pay us extra because we're really good at what we do. As you say, in terms of the bulge brackets, it maybe confirms suspicions, particularly about Goldman's dominance. But the kind of rise of the boutiques is one of the most interesting conclusions that you've come to here. Do you think that's going to continue? Well, it could. But what I think a lot of people in the market are seeing is that the big banks may actually be poised for a comeback. They're 10 years now clear of the crisis. All the fines are gone. And so they're in a better position to retain bankers, pay them top salaries. So these boutiques that have really risen up, the two I mentioned, Catalyst and Centerview, have taken advantage of the bleeding of talent from these big firms. And so you'll see a few of these firms like Centerview Catalyst stay at the top. But if you look at some of these more marginal boutiques, let's say a Green Hill and some others, they may actually be victims of the renaissance of the big firms. So you may be seeing a fundamental uh, reordering of the M&A marketplace, but I wouldn't write off the big banks. Well, maybe we'll come back to you in a year's time and get you to cut the data again. Thanks for now, Sujit. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma, Laura and Sujit, and also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.